Listening to Brave New Media, a new podcast where we hear from independent media organizations from around the world. In each episode, we'll hear from one media outlet facing significant challenges. And we talk to specialists about possible solutions. You don't need me to tell you that free media is facing huge obstacles right now. This podcast is about listening to the stories of those at the cutting edge, learning from their experience, and exploring the solutions that may help future-proof independent media. I'm Mahataki from BBC Media Action, the BBC's international charity. I'll be presenting the first mini-series of Brave New Media with three stories, one from Ukraine, one from Paraguay, and for this episode, we're going to meet a journalist based in my hometown of Beirut. One of the stories we covered called the graveyard of the Manbuzat. Al-Manbuzat is a noun in Arabic, meaning uh, neglected, women neglected or left out. It's a graveyard in northern Iraq, in Kurdistan. Those who are buried in it are young women uh, who either chose to have their own lives, to marry the ones they love, or just being killed for trying to cross the norms and build their own lives. So even after they die, after they are being killed, they are denied their identity. They are denied their names. They are either given numbers or nothing at all. Nobody visits them, nobody uh, look after them. It affects me because it it goes beyond life. It goes to the afterlife as well. So it's, I felt it was so cruel. We need the people to know these stories. We need the public to know what kind of injustices and to see these injustices in, in a proper narrative, in a proper context, to be able to, re, to refuse it and try to change it. And this is how we start building a different public opinion, a different approach towards our uh, our issues. That was journalist Diana Mallet on one of her stories that she is most proud of, because it exposes injustice and promotes positive social change. She told this story through her digital media platform Daraj, which she co-founded with two other journalists in Lebanon. Daraj uses text, image video and audio, to focus on underreported topics that are in the public interest. From the rights of foreign domestic workers living in Beirut, to the role big tech plays in supporting authoritarian regimes, and the exploitation of call centre staff in Egypt. But Diana's ability to report freely on those kinds of stories has been hard won. Her story starts in Saudi Arabia in the 1970s. I'm Diana Mallid. Uh, I'm a Lebanese journalist. I'm a feminist. I was born and raised in Saudi Arabia. My relation to Lebanon was limited to uh, stories I, I hear from my parents. I couldn't visit the country because there was civil war at that time. I'm talking about the period of 70s, early 80s. Uh, at that time, my sense of censorship, whether it's uh, personal or political, uh, started to grow. 
as I started monitoring myself as a girl, uh, what to wear, whom to speak to. Uh, the um, sense of authority also was very visible to me because of the news and what's happening around me, either in Saudi Arabia or in the region. Because there were few educational opportunities for women in Saudi Arabia, in the late 80s, Diana moved to Lebanon to study. The year the war ended in 1990, Diana graduated and decided to become a journalist. You know, in the early 90s, I started uh, working as a journalist and discovering what journalism is, actually. While the country was recovering from war and the new settlement and the new era of Lebanon post-war was uh, evolving. And at that time, censorship also was uh, taking a place. Uh, there was the audiovisual law that divided televisions in Lebanon upon political sectarian powers. So each media outlet would represent a certain political uh, party or a certain uh, sect in Lebanon. So you, we did not really um, play our role. Media was a reflection to the division of the country was not a reflection to the, to the interest of citizens of Lebanon. It was the interests of those who ruled the country. And I remember in the early 90s, there was this incident when all news uh, bulletin uh, were, were banned for a couple of months. None of the Lebanese media were able to broadcast news bulletin. It was a censorship because it was a kind of punishment at that time for crossing borders and crossing red lines. So since then, it was clear to me that it was, it was impossible to cover local politics without jumping over the red lines. Since then, I started evolving my own formula, which is I cover the stories that I can cover properly and avoid the things that might uh, compromise my integrity as a journalist. So I did make this balance between me trying to improve as a journalist, being professional as much as I can, and trying to have these compromises where it did not affect me or it did not affect my integrity entirely. Fast forward 20 years and Diana has built a successful career in journalism and is a familiar face as a TV reporter for a mainstream media channel. But when the wave of protests known as the Arab Spring came to Lebanon in 2011, she began to question the whole basis of her work. At that time, we started seeing also the counter-revolution. And the first who were to pay the price for these counter-revolutions were activists, were human rights defenders, and journalists. We started seeing journalists being assassinated. We started seeing how revolutions have been turned into a bloody bath, where many have been imprisoned or tortured or killed or being shot at. So at that time, being part of the media, I thought to us, we had to make a choice. The model that was that was there in the 90s could not repeat itself after 2011. There was too much blood. There was, there was too much violence that you cannot tolerate it anymore. And since then, we started thinking, I started thinking of having my own path. 
After the Arab Spring, Diana dreamt of creating her own independent media outlet so she could report on whatever she felt audiences should know about. It wasn't until a few years later, in 2017, that Diana met two like-minded journalists with whom she felt she could turn her idea into reality. One of them, Ali Ibrahim, worked for the pan-Arab news channel Al Arabiya, which, like many media organizations in the region, had strong connections to the Saudis. It was a sunny day. It was in the afternoon. It wasn't rainy or something. But we were shocked. I mean, Alia, she, she was going to her office in the early morning to discover that it was closed. She couldn't enter. I called her. I knew before her. I was telling her, Alia, Arabia have closed in Beirut. She thought I was joking. Uh, the office of Al Arabiya was closed in Beirut because of political reasons. The Saudis wanted to punish Hezbollah, so they decided that they didn't want any presence in Lebanon. So their office was closed and she was released from the office. And she was in disbelief that this could happen because of political reasons. And when she went there and discovered that she couldn't access her office, we met in downtown. Uh, it was... Um, Casper and Gabini Cafe in downtown Beirut. Unfortunately, it's one, it was one of the cafes that, was, that were destroyed in Beirut Blast. So uh, we used to go there. It was very central, close to our offices. This is where we uh, used to meet uh, whenever we have a short period, a short time where we can grab a coffee, uh, talk about our work and our frustrations, and uh, we, make, we make fun of what's happening around us. On that sunny day in Beirut, all three journalists decided that they had had enough of the tightly controlled media environment and its political affiliations. It was time for a change. So we thought, uh, let's move on. Let's think of something. It's about time to create an independent media where we don't jeopardize our integrity and where we can uh, cover properly the type of stories we would like to cover. And there are plenty of them. So we thought we are in a hole. And we wanted a way out. This is why we came with uh, the name Daraj. Daraj is uh, a noun meaning steps. So we felt we are in a hole and we wanted a way out. So we thought Daraj uh, would be uh, suitable for our platform. This is how we came with, uh, with the name. But when they tried to establish Daraj, they soon ran into obstacles. It was new to us to discover how to create a media company. The three of us, we are both, we're all journalists. None of us has uh, business uh, experience. We're all, we, we all share the, the same background. So discovering, exploring how to have a business model, how to have a strategy, how to have a budget was something new to us. And the question of funding was very, very sensitive because we want our editorial line to be independent. We didn't want anyone or any party or any side to have leverage upon our editorial outline. So this is when we, we started looking for funders who wouldn't exercise any kind of, of editorial pressure upon us. And this is why we decided we will not take any money from any government, at least not the governments that, ha that are aligned to the political uh, dimension in our region. 
First of all, we try to approach uh, progressive investors who might be interested in having an independent media and having this project. Frankly, we were not lucky. We had some meetings, um, some businessmen liked the idea, but they did not have the gut or uh, they did not feel comfortable. We knew it wasn't easy because uh, businessmen have interests with those who are either in power or aligned with those who are in power. It is impossible, impossible, not only in Lebanon, but in the whole region to have a business or to run a business without having certain kind of compromise or being affiliated uh, to somebody who is really powerful. It was weird and frustrating at the same time because you have to deal with people who are not journalists, who don't share with you uh, necessarily same values. I remember one of the meetings was with advertisement agency. It was really horrible meeting because we, we speak different languages. We have different priorities. They think of advertisement, they think of clients, we think of integrity, we think of objectivity, we think of commitment. So to us, what that was a disastrous meeting. And we reached a moment where we thought it will not materialize. We will not be able to create Daraj. But they did manage to launch their public interest platform in 2017 after obtaining funding from international foundations. But they were determined that it wouldn't be a non-profit organization reliant solely on donor funding. The goal had to be financial self-sufficiency. Daraj shouldn't rely that much on funders, but also rely on the outcome of our own uh, enterprise. And it, it could be subscription, advertisement, production. So we need to diversify our uh, streams of, of, of funding to be able uh, to sustain, because this is how you preserve your editorial independence. Daraj is now able to generate part of its total budget from the profits of a subsidiary production consultancy, with the rest coming from international donors. But it still lacks the funding that would allow it to meet its ambitions. For example, it needs more people on its team that are specialised in areas such as data analysis and marketing to engage and build audiences. But Daraj can't really afford that yet, and its income streams will never match the massive state investment in mainstream media in the region. If you look at the key players in the region, they are investing billions of money. Saudi Arabia have announced that between now and the year 2030, they will invest $64 billion in entertainment. This is not to mention what Qatar is investing, what Iran is investing, what Russia is investing. We're talking about major players using billions of dollars to, to hijack or to manipulate the public sphere, whether entertainment, whether media, whether whatever, name it. They are controlling the narrative by those billions of dollars. So to us, we are being funded by a few thousands or, I mean, the whole budget does not exceed $1 million a year. I'm not undermining what we do. Actually, I'm saying what we do has a value because it is challenging the billions that are being spent on propaganda from all sides, from all the key players in the region. 
Despite the funding challenges, Diana has been able to use Daraj to report on the stories she believes need to be told. But it has not been without consequences for her personally. My friends who still live in the Gulf, because I'm outspoken, because I, I criticize uh, extensively uh, in my work and in my comments, they tend not to show any kind of relation or, uh, or any pictures with me publicly. They wouldn't like my uh, personal posts. They wouldn't uh, share my uh, stories. They wouldn't uh, put a smiley face on one of my uh, images. I, I, I understand it, but at the same time, it hurts. So you lose this uh, basic communications with your friends. But again, I, it's not them I'm blaming. I'm blaming the regimes that would put someone in prison for five to ten years for doing something on social media. That it made it uh, something that would monitor those who are affiliated to someone who is critical on social media. Because of this toxic media environment, around a quarter of Daraj journalists use pen names, so they don't have to live in fear of repercussions. Despite these dangers, Diana knows what a positive impact it can have when people have a platform to actually give them a public voice. One of our female writers, uh, writer-journalist, she's from Iraq, uh, she's very young, uh, she's very motivated, and she writes with a passion. Uh, she covers uh, social issues in Iraq. She called me a couple of weeks ago, sobbing, crying, that one member of her family beaten her up because they found her smoking in one of the cafes. To me, I mean, hearing the story, trying to comfort a young journalist, uh, and telling her it was her basic right to be able to go out and smoke outside and do whatever she wants uh, was was really uh, agonizing for me and for her as well. Trying to comfort a journalist who who is covering other stories where she is herself is a story. Journalism is helping her and me. I need people like her to find the same support that I couldn't have. So it's not only her, plenty of journalists, plenty of people, plenty of voices that nobody hears, nobody uh, just give a damn about. I think it's my responsibility as a person, as someone who is responsible in Daraj, to enable our platform to reflect those people and enabling them and make them feel that they are worth it and they can do it. When I interviewed Diana, I asked her what it felt like to have reclaimed her voice through Daraj after years of having to self-censor. It's hard to describe the feeling, but it is a very satisfactory one. It, it's not you feel good about yourself. You will never feel good. You need to earn this kind of feeling. But it's an accumulation of doing what is right, that you couldn't do it before, but now you can do it and you will keep doing as much as you can. Speaking to Diana, it's clear that co-founding Daraj was an act of empowerment and liberation. It's helped her reclaim her own public voice, given opportunities to others to do the same, and shone a light on issues that would have otherwise been ignored by mainstream media. But it hasn't been an easy journey. She's had to resolve the funding challenges that make it so difficult to compete 
especially with politically affiliated outlets with deeper resources. I wanted to take a closer look at the funding issue and to reflect on what Daraj's experience so far tells us about the future of media in the region. So, I put Daraj's story to a professor with both media experience and extensive knowledge of the region. Okay, so I'm Naomi Sarkar. I'm a professor of media policy at the University of Westminster in the UK. But before that, I was a journalist and a country analyst, which kind of, the journalism part kind of explains my interest in media. Naomi, you just listened to Diana's story. Could you share with us what you thought was the, like the most moving takeaway? Um, I mean, there's a lot, especially the sense of despair, but it puts me in mind of a visual image. So one time on a work trip to Beirut, I, um, I saw this wonderful enlarged photograph of an old stairwell in an old apartment block. And it, so if you imagine the stairwell curving up from the darkness to the light, and I found that image so symbolic, I absolutely had to have it. Um, and I, you know, it means a lot to me. And when um, I listened to Deanna and she was talking about the explanation of why Daraj is called Daraj. And of course, I, I knew what Daraj meant. But when she described it, it immediately brought that image to my mind. So I feel a huge kind of affinity for that, for that aspiration, let's say. Um, and that's kind of one of the moving things, I guess, for me, emotionally. Do you think that Diana's story is typical? Like, typical of others who have gone down the same independence route? Yeah, I don't know about typical. Um, I mean, I think we underestimate how many people in the region actually do get it about independent media and do want independent media. Mm. But we also underestimate that um, the kind of... Uh, chilling effect of uh, authoritarianism because people are afraid to get into trouble um, by saying that, you know, saying what they, they believe. And actually, Deanna says that in the interview. She says her friends in the Gulf are still her friends, but they're extremely careful not to endorse what she's reporting. They're not going to, like, show their support for it in public. And I think, I mean, this is one of the things that, Independent reporting in the region is not seen as independent. It is seen as opposition or criticism, right? So you either toe the government line or you're a political opponent, which means that there is no room to analyse freely. And obviously in Lebanon, um, again, when you ask about typical, Lebanon is a special case because of the kind of confessionalist alignment of the media so that... um, you know, media are associated or affiliated with different communities, Sunni, Shia, Maronite, Orthodox, and so on, um, which makes it really hard in Lebanon. And I, I think we basically, the, the short answer is we shouldn't underestimate how much people actually do appreciate and want independent media. And we know, we both know how independent media and particularly investigative journalism requires a lot of funding um, and we, you know, we've heard um, Diana's story and the struggles that um, she went through to stay financially afloat. But do you think there are solutions out there or it's always going to be a struggle in this kind of climate? Yeah, there are. Um, there are solutions. I, I mean, I've described editorial independence. It means being able to publish something that is going, is going to annoy 
people and you've got to be able to carry on publishing despite that person like withdrawing or trying withdrawing their support or whatever so the financial model you need to do that is one that means that you can still keep going you know regardless of um of what you expose in your editorial output um so you know you can provide services where you so you cross subsidize you do you provide services like translation or artwork for ads or customized news bulletins or training or whatever and you use the revenue from that to subsidize your journalism um and then another idea is a subscription model whereby readers you know you get readers to actually subscribe and i mean that does work for for many good outlets reliable outlets in um in north america and europe um and the idea is that if you can get a diasporic readership they can pay higher subscription rates than people locally but the thing is i mean there is an important point to make it's all very well talking about revenue but independent startups have got costs that you can't ignore right and um what are these costs can you explain them to us please so i mean if you have a, a respectable independent outlet that wants to treat journalism seriously they're going to face multiple cost pressures you know if you want your staff to be valued you have to kind of offer a, a career development structure you know with a salary t- um that matches you want to give them the proper technical resources and office space you've got to invest in fact checking because you've got to be doubly sure because you're going to have to probably face court cases and um litigation you know just for doing your job so that takes extra resources so those are the cost pressures and at the same time yes they can seek out advertising revenue but it's going to be from the small advertisers that you know are not going to get government contracts anyway and that are not part of kind of the crony networks of the regime but small advertisers have small advertising budgets and they don't have the experience in placing ads so you've got to invest in actually kind of cultivating that um sort of advertising uh culture um and then if you think about it if you've got a subscription model that serves a local readership and a foreign you know a, a diasporic readership what kind of advertising is going to be matched to that very kind of diverse readership so you know it's 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 a big challenge and it's important to think about costs as you know the 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 costs as well as the revenues i would say it does seem like there's a lot of experimentation out there you know we've 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 heard about subscription models uh membership models cr- cross subsidizing income from pro- for profit companies like the production company that diana uh, and daraj run but do you think there's other things they should be trying um if in the independent startups if they can position themselves as kind of potential allies of other players in the sector who may be kind of partially public interest and partially commercial for example if they can you know create co- coalitions and alliances with those people and develop some kind of solidarity um i think i think that can work i mean what comes to mind for example is right at tv in jordan so they've um 
they work with, they need content. And because they need content, they work with, you know, smaller outlets and, you know, people who upload stuff to YouTube, local satirists and so on. So if you have this sense that, you know, expression is really important and people want to express themselves, then maybe you can create these kind of coalitions of solidarity, you know, in a, in a, in a national community um, that will help to defend the, the, the different outlets, you know, when they, when they face difficulties. Thanks, Naomi. And this last question is quite a big one. But what do you think Diana's story tells us about the future of the media landscape in the region? Um, I think it's credibility at the end of the day that that draws people. Um, and credibility means reflecting, you know, every, every, your everyday experience. With The younger generations have shown that they don't want sectarian media, that they want media that are that relate to their experience and i think again this is something that um that we shouldn't um underestimate is the um sort of the aspirations of of of, of a young of a younger generation you know people sort of 15 to 35 um whose outlook on life and whose concerns and worries are really very different from those of their parents. And I think that their news diets um, reflect this. I've said it before and I will keep saying it. Daraj and journalism and activism in general, because sometimes activism and journalism cross. So this kind of public work is my response to what's happening to us as people and to people who live with us. I, I was one of the Lebanese uh, depositors whom uh, the bank have stolen uh, our money. I am one of the survivors of Beirut Plast. I'm one of the people who have so many injustices because I'm a woman uh, living in, in, uh, in a country that uh, discriminates between men and women. So my reflection to what's happening around me is through journalism. It's through my work in Daraj. And I think this kind of reflection will remain with me as, as long as I live. This is what I do. This is what I want to do. This is the only way to respond to what's happening around me. That's it for now. I hope the Daraj story and Naomi's insight gives some food for thought and action. We want this podcast to be of practical use, so please let us know if this is the case for you or what you'd like to hear more about. In the next episode, we'll be talking to the founders of Zabarona, a media organization publishing news from inside Ukraine. Subscribe to Brave New Media to make sure you don't miss it. This episode was a Holy Mountain production for Primed, a project that supports a provision of public interest content. Primed is led by BBC Media Action, the BBC's international charity. It was produced by Saskia Black and Boss Temple Morris, and executive produced by Mahataki and Paul Harper. The series' music was created by Alistair McGregor. The clips were provided by Daraj. Brave New Media.